0: Well, we're gonna go ahead and continue on in the, the book of 2nd Corinthians. Did I surprise anybody with that one? We're going ahead and going through chapter, uh, going through chapter uh, uh seven here. And uh, you know, the, the Corinthian church has really caused Paul no end of headaches. Like if you read about what's going on, his first letter is is up, uh, dealing with some correction in the church and once again defending his ministry and then even after that and we're going to find out uh, a little bit about how that went today how that for the response to that first letter today but even after that he still got to write him back again uh, defending himself and and uh uh Man, being a, being a pastor is, is kind of like being a dad or a mom sometimes, where your kids just cause you no end of heartache because you're worried about them they're not doing the stuff they're supposed to be doing. You want them to do the right thing. You want to correct them, but you don't want to push them too hard. You want to do all these different things. And, and truthfully, the Corinthians have been a giant pain in the butt for Paul, I think. But in spite of this, he still loved them so very much. And I think it's just like us with kids or really any pastor that pastors a church, we can relate to this. We love the people of our church no matter what's going on. And and this letter so far, the first part of this letter has actually been Paul defending his ministry to these very people that he poured into their lives. And he wants to restore his relationship with him. That's the first part of this, is kind of getting things back to normal, saying, hey, quit listening to all these fools that are coming around and trying to turn you against me, telling you something else, that are telling you lies and deceiving you, and let's get things back to the way they were. You know that we didn't take advantage of you. We didn't corrupt anybody. We didn't lie to anybody. They're telling lies about us. But this has all been about kind of trying to restore that and getting things back together. You remember last week, he says, listen, guys, open your hearts to us as we've opened our hearts to you. Let's get back and fix what was broken. And once again today, you're going to see that very same, same plea for them to, to, to basically open their hearts to him again. And then after that, he's going to spend a, a pretty good deal of time kind of encouraging them and commending them for the response to his first letter. You guys remember the first letter we went through that? That was pretty much a... Uh, Uh, a scathing rebuke almost the entire thing but it turns out the the corinthian church responded appropriately to that and uh, we're actually going to find out that paul was actually worried about that you know because it's always a concern when you address people particularly when you have to correct people how they're going to respond are they going to respond appropriately and 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 do the right thing and make some changes are they just going to get offended and, and and run off you know and the truth is, any of us that have had kids have gone through that, wondering how is it going to turn out. Well, let's go ahead and get started in verse uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to the completion in the fear of God. This is once again, seems like this should have been tacked on to the end of the last chapter. Because the promises that he's talking about here, since we have these promises, was actually brought up at the end of chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The promises God has just made to his people are pretty incredible if you think about it. The first thing he says is that God promises to dwell among us and walk among us. You guys realize how amazing that is? You know, if you look at every other iteration of what people thought were God's, they were always high and mighty. They were always aloof. They were always far away from the people. People were just playthings and toys to them in these people's minds the gods were always far away unless they were they were meddling in people's lives really to cause mischief it seemed that's what man's idea of god is have you noticed that the god of the bible is so different than every other man-made god because what we picture a god to be is not anything like what a god actually is what our god actually is but he promises to dwell among us and i don't know about you guys that's an amazing thing to me. God is not far away. We're not an afterthought. We're not just something that's annoying to him. God actually cares about us. He wants to be with us. He wants to walk with us. He wants to talk to you. He wants to have a relationship with you. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he says he's going to walk and dwell among us. That's why the Holy Spirit lives inside you. You're the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. God walks with you every single day. Next, he says he will be our God and we will be his people. That's an amazing thing to me. You know, we were talking about, I think it was in Bible study, about God's relationship with us. And and, and the way God deals with us is is as friends or as children. We're his people. We're We're not pets to God. We're not someone he's just looking after, but he actually cares about us and he wants that relationship with us. And then it says that we're going to be welcomed by God. He's going to be a father to us and we'll be his sons and daughters. That's amazing. You know, how many knows that it would be awesome if God just said we were going to be his friend? Which we are. We're friends of God. But then he also says that you'll be my sons and my daughter because that carries so much more with it. That means we get an inheritance. That means we're part of the family. We're not just a close family friend, but that gives us legal standing and right. Does, well, how many know that, that, that the, the neighbor kid doesn't have the same legal standing and right to your, to your household that your own kid does? We're elevated to a higher status. These are amazing promises that God has just made. And he says, since we have these promises, beloved we should probably do some things. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit. You know, the thing about these promises, I don't know if you noticed in the midst of them, he says, therefore go out into their midst, that's us, go out into the midst of the world, the people of this world, but be separate from them. Now, that doesn't mean don't intermingle with them, that means that we should be set apart from them, we should be different. Says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then he says, then I will welcome you. Especially because these promises come with a condition, we need to take a look at how we're living our lives. We need to cleanse ourselves, is what Paul says here. And Notice he doesn't say, from most defilements of the body and spirit. Or he doesn't say, from you know, the bad defilements of the body and spirit. He says, from every defilement of the body and spirit. How many you know of all the things that are a defilement to body and spirit, how many every encompasses? All of them, every one of them. We need to cleanse ourselves from those things. And if you think about this, if you read the first letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church seems to have had plenty of defilements of body and spirit going on, Right? There was the sin that 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 I mean, the Bible calls sexual sin the only sin against the body, and we had somebody in the Corinthian church sleeping with his father's wife. And then we had the stuff that's the involvement of the spirit. That's the kind of stuff like when you are 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 putting your faith in people. I'm of Apollo, so I'm of Paul, because their faith was in people and not in not in God. Did you see that ninja-like skill right there? How oh, I didn't drop it. So then they were focused on that, or they had idols, all these things that were defiled. I mean, they had some stuff going on in the church. And these were just a few of the things. There's a lot in that, that letter if you want to go ahead and read it again. But see, here's the thing is that these instructions aren't just written down for the Corinthian church. These are applicable to you and I. We need to worry about these things that defile body and spirit. These promises are for us, but so are these instructions. And I'm afraid that so often in the pursuit of grace, we let the pendulum swing too far. You know, because if you, if you think about over time, as you look at how grace has been treated over, over history, it's like a pendulum, right? It swung way far to the left and everything was works, 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 works. You know, if you didn't go to church, you weren't even saved till the next Sunday till you had an opportunity to make it to church because it was all work-based. And then somebody had a revelation of what grace really was and it starts swinging this way and they missed the balance point. And then it went to the other side and it was just grace, 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 grace. You can do whatever you want. You can live however you want because God loves you and He'll forgive you. His grace covers it all. And we let it swing too far. What, happening, what happened was is that people didn't understand that the point of grace was to free you from sin not to give you freedom to sin. Not given a license to sin. And what happens is, is we permit sin in our life because of the promise of forgiveness. And it's weird that we do that because this, Paul deals with this multiple times. I mean, Paul in the book of Romans says, says uh, if grace covers sins and, and the more sin, the more grace, should we go ahead and sin some more so that there'll be more grace? And he says, may it never be. And Paul says here that we need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit. Now, those of you who have, have been around for a long time at this church, you know that I believe personally that if you're born again and you are walking with the spirit and your eyes are on God, it is possible to live without sin. Now, I get a lot of pushback on that because the reality is, is we still all sin. So I understand that this is a a theoretical (laughs) maximum, right? And I'm reading the commentaries and stuff. People are writing about this where he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. They're saying, they say that, oh no, what he's really teaching is that we should just be maturing in our faith, but he's not really talking about living sinless because that's impossible. And, And I'm thinking, why can't he mean both? That should be our goal is moving towards sinlessness, Because shouldn't maturing in the faith, maturing in our walk with Jesus, shouldn't that lead to less and less sin? That's the ultimate goal. This is why we should be imitating Christ. It doesn't say we should imitate Christ up to a certain point. We should be imitating Him. And Christ lived without sin. That should be our end goal. He is the measure and stature of the mature man. That's who we are moving towards and pushing to. Like I said, I understand that it's highly unlikely that any one of us is ever going to mature in our faith to that point that we do live without sin. But it should be our goal. Because Christ did more than enough. The issue isn't what God accomplished inside of us. The issue is how we apply that in our lives. And even Paul says, I have not attained it yet. In Philippians 3.12, he says, I have not attained it yet. I'm not perfect. But I press on towards it his goal was to be like jesus just like our goal should to be like jesus when paul said imitate me as i imitate christ he didn't say imitate me in everything because i'm imitating christ perfectly he says imitate me in those things that i imitate christ in which means that we're supposed to imitate christ and as christians we should be striving to live a sinless life that's why jesus went to the cross it was not just so that we could be forgiven but so that we could be free from all those things that had a hold on us before and the, and when i say that we can live a sinless life that it's possible it's not because of our own strength if you try to do it on your own you'll fail but it's because what was accomplished inside of you because when you were born again at that moment your spirit was made brand new. You had the, your old spirit pulled out, a new one put inside of you. A miracle took place, and that spirit is perfect. Your spirit is perfect. Your spirit is pure. Your spirit is holy. It's been perfected. Positionally and spiritually, when you stand before God, you are righteous, you are perfect, and you are holy. But here's the thing. Every one of us is spirit, but we also have a soul, and we also have a body. Your spirit is, 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 is who you are. We are spirit beings. Your soul is your mind, will, and your emotions. It's the stuff you think about, the stuff going through your head, and obviously you know what your body is. The problem is, is that when we get born again, our spirit is perfected, but sometimes it takes a little while for our will, our, our, our soul and our body to catch up to what has been accomplished in our spirit. That's what he means here is that, that we cleanse ourselves from every development of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. Our spirit is holy, but our body takes a little while to catch up. But here's the thing. Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves. That means that God's not going to come down and physically pluck sin out of your life for you. That means that you're going to have to make some decisions. You're going to have to make some choices in your life. And if you try to do it in your own strength, you're going to fail. That's the thing. If you want to walk in holiness, if you want to walk what's been accomplished inside of you through Jesus Christ, you do it by faith. You do it by turning away from sin and looking back towards Jesus. You do it by spending time in the Word and letting your mind be renewed. Because your mind has to catch up to what has happened in your spirit. So you spend time in the Word. You learn about who you are. In Jesus, you learn about who Jesus actually is. And if you begin to walk in the Spirit, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to walk what has been accomplished in your Spirit, to walk in that purity, to walk in that that holiness, to walk in that perfection. That's to let what happened in your Spirit to permeate into your life, into how you think, to how you act, to how you behave, to what you're putting your body through what you're allowing your body to do so you put your eyes on jesus and you trust in what he has accomplished and you turn away from the sin that is always trying to pull you down but it now no longer has a hold on you you're not attached by chains anymore it doesn't have control now the thing is is all too often we stop looking at jesus and we glance back that way and we get sucked back in we make mistakes we fall we stumble Thank God that we're still forgiven. That's where grace comes in. Not when we intentionally choose to sin. If you're intentionally choosing to live in sin, you might want to evaluate where your heart is actually standing. Because if you're born again, if your eyes are on Jesus, sin should should be in opposition to who you are. You should feel that pushback. You should feel that, that grinding. Paul referred to it as kicking against the goads. It should feel weird. It should should hurt. It should be different. But when you put your eyes back on Jesus and you turn away from sin, that's actually what repentance is. Repentance is not about feeling guilty and feeling really, really, really bad. Repentance is about turning away from sin and back towards God. It's an about face. And then he says we do this in the fear of God. We talked about what the fear of, of the Lord is, I believe it was last week or, or maybe the week before, but it's this idea of understanding the power and awesomeness of God. It's having an awe and understanding in the power of God, and I think that can be applied in two ways. One is understanding that, that uh, like we said, uh, I, th- I think it was last week, that, that God doesn't want to have to to deal with it. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to, to succumb to sin. But he has the power to do those things. He has the power to destroy those things. So we stand in awe and fear of him, not because he wants to, but because we recognize that he has that power. And that's one thing if we're going to reject Jesus, if we're going to reject what he's done in our lives and we're going to choose to live in sin, we should have a little bit of fear and awe of what that means, what the the end result will be. But I think we should also be reminded by the awesomeness and power of God because if He says that you're free, then you're free. If God says something, nobody else can say something different. If He says you're free, then you are free. And when you do this, when you begin to live out of who. Christ has made you because he gave his life for you and made you brand new. This is when we begin to see holiness, which happened in your spirit, come to completion in your, in your body and in your soul as you begin to live out what has happened and been done in you. Amen? In 2 Corinthians 7, 2-4, he says, Make room in your heart for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So after Paul has made his appeal in the end of chapter 6 to remember what he said, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We need to not be unequally yoked. He's basically made the appeal for them to separate themselves from those people that are, that are, that are not equally yoked in Christ with them. And obviously Paul believed that those who were, were opposing him were those types of people. He also made the appeal for them to, to, to cleanse themselves, right? He just made that appeal. And now I say, now that, you've, that I've said for you to do that, you should be in a position to open your hearts to us again. And it's a very similar plea to the one he made in chapter 6 where he wants them to, he says, our hearts are open towards you, so please open your hearts towards us. Now he says, make room in your hearts for us. If you get rid of those other things that are in the way, people that aren't Christians, people that are unequally yoked, trying to drag you down the wrong direction, and you get rid of sin in your life, then there should be room in your hearts for us. That's why he's repeating the same argument again here. Because, those were the two things that seemed to be turning people away from Paul. It was people coming in, trying to steal them away, persuade them of something else, and sin seemed to be getting in the way as well. And I read this and I realize that that's the main reasons why people leave the church today. One, either people come in and try to entice them away to either go to some other church which should be a terrible way to... That's never the way that we want to increase growth in the church is by taking people from other churches. We want people to get saved. That's how we grow the church. Or even worse, people come in and they 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 get persuaded by somebody to walk away from the faith. So many teenagers now uh, grow up in the church. They get to college and they walk away because they're persuaded by people there that are teaching them something else. And the truth is, is that that we've done a pretty pretty poor job of preparing them to deal with the arguments that they're going to receive. When they come in and they say, oh, God's just a fairy tale, there's no evidence for God, and, and we've never showed them the evidence for God, how that they can respond to those things. And they get persuaded away. And then the other one is sin. People get wrapped up in sin, either intentionally. You know, when people want to decide that sin is more important than anything else, then they'll walk away from the church because Well, because people will oppose that in the church. We're not okay with sin. We, we, We love people, but we're still going to encourage them to get out of their sin. Or worse, they stumble. And instead of coming for support, instead of coming for encouragement, they become ashamed and they run away from the church. You know, these two things pull people from the church all the time. So Paul's trying to deal with that ahead of time. And Paul reminds them to open their heart, and then he says, he says that uh, because we've wronged no one. Like the, these, these reasons they're giving you are out of place. There's no real reason for us, for you to, to push back against us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one, and we have taken advantage of no one. And then he says, I do not say this to condemn you. And it seems like a weird thing. How can him saying that he's taken advantage of no one, he's corrupted no one, that that he's he's uh, wrong, no one? How would that condemn him? But I imagine imagine you're the Corinthian church, and you just got the first letter, where you guys got reamed kind of big, and then even part of this letter, Paul's going to be addressing some stuff as well. But he's 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 basically reminding them as he's defending his ministry that you don't have any reason to be listening to these people and I imagine the Corinthians are probably thinking man is he just going gonna to drop us is he, just gonna, is he so mad he's just not going to have anything to do with us but he says no I'm not telling you this stuff to condemn you I'm not saying that I'm not here for you I'm just trying to encourage you to repair this relationship that we have I'm not saying that I'm done and I'm never coming back he's not saying that my attitude hasn't changed towards you he's not saying I don't love you anymore and I'm out of here but on the contrary, he still loved them. He says, he says, I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He says, you know what? I still love you. Matter of fact, I would still die for you. Their lives are tied together. And he goes on because he's still proud of them and they they comfort him in all of their affliction, the Corinthian church still fills him with joy. Even in the midst of all the abuse, all the slander, all the discomfort that he has endured, the Corinthian church still fills him with joy because he still loves them. And then he goes on in verses 5-7, through For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear and or fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning and your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. So the question is, why was he comforted? Why was he joyful? What was going on? Because the truth is, is that Paul went through a mess. He goes to Macedonia. He's attacked there. There's people that are trying to abuse him there. It seems like every place that he goes to minister, something bad happens. I mean, the guy's been through some rough stuff in his ministry, uh, 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 these these missionary journeys that he takes. And he's exhausted from the trip. Matter of fact, he just came from Macedonia. He's trying to find Titus to get some word. He's going all over the place. And, and, and it says our bodies have not had any rest and we're afflicted at every turn fighting without. That means externally they're fighting stuff all the time. I mean, how many times did did, Paul, uh, did people try to kill Paul? I mean, the dude was stoned and left for dead. And he gets back up and heads right back into the city to preach again. I don't know if that was a wise decision, but God was with him, so it turned out okay. But from a human perspective, that didn't seem to make any sense. But he says, we're fighting without all kinds of things. And it's not only physical, but it's the abuse, the slander, the words that are coming against them. And then he says, they're fighting fear within. You know, the, the thing about fear, God says, I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of sound mind. It's not that we don't feel fear, that sometimes we just have to choose in faith over fear, but you're still going to deal with fear in your life. And he says that that we had fear within, and I I wonder what was Paul afraid of? And I think we'll see a little hint of it as we read a little bit further, but Paul had just sent a letter to the Corinthian church. One, he left, they become a mess. He sends a letter to try to correct it. He doesn't know how they're behaving, and he's probably a little afraid of, of how they responded. Did they reject his correction? Did they reject his letter? and are they lost forever or did they respond well so he's dealing with all of these different things i mean can you imagine like nowadays we send a text to somebody that might be a little uh, a a little harsher off putting but it has to be said and you know if they don't write right back we're wondering like what happened are they mad are they going to come back and it's only been like 15 seconds can you imagine sending a letter where it takes weeks, months to find out the response and what's going through your head? How did they respond? Did I persuade them to move forward into Christ or did they, did they get offended and turn the other way? Paul instead was comforted because of Titus. They get to Macedonia and they finally find Titus. Titus is the one that sent the letter, that took the letter, to the, the, the first letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, we see that the one... Paul, Titus is, is, is Paul's son in the faith. I imagine just being with him was a comfort. Like at least he's still here and there. You know, being in fellowship with other believers, your friends can make an impact in your life. Paul missed his disciple. Paul missed his friend. And he finally had that opportunity to, to reach out to him. But also, he finally gets word of the Corinthian church when he runs into Titus. And he finds out that all had not been lost. You know, that could have been his, his fear, his concern. But instead, he says that we were comforted by the, the comfort of Titus, but not only by his coming, but also by the comfort from which he was comforted by you and what he told us about him, their longing, their mourning, their zeal. You see, the, the letter that, that Paul had sent with Titus, which is 1 Corinthians, had an impact on the Corinthian church. And even in the midst of receiving such a harsh letter, they still received Titus with great joy. And they comforted Titus when he showed up. As a result, Titus is feeling pretty good. He's comforted. He's like, okay, all's not lost. It's, you know, things are turning around. And so he's feeling pretty good. And he's able to comfort Paul in that very same thing. Because they had received that letter, but they still had a longing to to be with Paul, to restore that relationship with Paul. Paul was worried, would they get this letter and, and turn their back on me completely? Or would they still want me in their life? They still longed to see Paul Says they had some mourning because they were sorry about how they behaved. They were sorry about what was going on. And they still had a zeal for Paul. And even though there were still things that they needed to get together, we know this because Paul is going to correct some stuff over the next few chapters here in a little bit. I think in a couple weeks from now, we'll start seeing him address some stuff again. So they hadn't gotten it all figured out, but at least they were moving in the right direction. They were not lost. And this makes Paul rejoice because he's seeing his spiritual children grow and move forward. And this is great for Paul because I really think he was concerned with how they would respond to that last letter that he sent. And we know this because he starts talking about the last letter here and the impact that it would have. Verses 8-9 through says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt the godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. The last letter Paul had sent was pretty stern and direct. And we talked about some of the stuff he dealt with, right? The fornication. The idols, the different bickering and the jealousy and all the stuff that was going on. And Paul says now, after he hears how they responded, he doesn't regret sending the letter. But the interesting thing is, is he did at one point. He says, I don't regret it, even if I made you grieve because now he knows how they responded. He says, though I did regret it, for I see the letter grieved you. You know, as a pastor, I can relate to this one because one of my responsibilities for the people in this church and really anybody that calls me pastor and that's given me permission to speak into their life is to, to correct people when things need to be correcting. And one of the things that always goes through my head is how people are going to receive this. When we, when we sit down and talk with people, how people are going to react. And it's, it's like if your parents ever told you this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, as a kid you don't understand that you will one day but you sit down with them and you wonder how are they going to respond because the correction needs to happen this this, the things need to happen we have to deal with stuff but are they going to respond and 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 take what you said to heart and begin to grow and move forward are they going to get offended are they going to get upset are they going to become defensive and walk away and you wonder, am I, am I, pu- I going to push too hard? Because our goal is to push people towards repentance, It's to push people towards growth. Our goal isn't to grieve people, even though that's often the result, especially when, you're, when people are messing up and they finally realize it. And they feel bad, they feel grieved. But if we push too hard and we push them away, then nothing good came of it. So we're always wondering, how is this going to play out? You wouldn't believe how much praying I do before I meet with people, particularly when, when something needs to be addressed because I never know how it's going to go. What if I push them away instead of towards Jesus? And I think that's why he initially regretted it, especially because who knows how long it was before he sent that letter and he finally worried how it went. He wondered, that I pushed too hard? What if it didn't push them towards repentance and instead it caused them to reject? myself and ultimately reject the gospel but we know that the corinthian church actually responded appropriately to that letter they didn't get offended they didn't get defensive but instead they responded in repentance he says that i rejoice not because you were grieved. he wasn't happy that they were hurting that's not the whole point of any of this stuff matter of fact that's the part that hurts us more than it hurts you is to see you hurting But he says, I'm glad because it caused you to repent because you felt the godly grief so that you suffered no loss. The Corinthian church grew instead of rebelled. And because of this, Paul rejoiced. And then it says, as a result, they suffered no loss. Paul was worried. If I push too hard and they reject Jesus, they reject the gospel, then they're going to suffer loss. But thank God. That they responded appropriately and they grew they repented and they matured and church i want to encourage you that if you ever find yourself in a position of being corrected whether by the pastor or by somebody that you've allowed to speak into your life to mentor you someone that's more spiritually mature or even if it's the holy spirit don't become defensive don't become rebellious don't reject. Instead, just repent. Turn away from those things and put your eyes back on Jesus. Even if it causes you hurt and pain to hear these things, repent. Because that's the key to growth and maturity in your Christian walk. This is what Paul says in verse 10. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in that matter. You see, grief is not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's godly and not worldly. Because godly grief, like you said to repeat, leads you to repentance and salvation. But worldly grief produces death because there's no way out. You know, that's just like when you, the, the two prime examples that I can think of would be Peter or Judas. You see, Peter rejected Jesus three times. And we know that he had a godly grief. He was hurting because of what he did. He recognized it was wrong. But it was godly grief because it needed him to repent and follow Jesus. And he was, One of the strongest disciples after that because he put his eyes back on Jesus. But then we have Judas who betrays God and the grief that he feels overwhelms him. But instead of repenting, he felt like there was no way out. There was nothing that he could do. So instead, he takes his own life. You see, godly grief causes you to repent, put your eyes back on on Jesus, leads to salvation without regret. That means that failure, that past gets wiped away in the blood of Jesus just like anything else, any other sin that you commit. But when we don't repent, when we don't have a way out, it leads to death. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction points out your wrongdoing, but it says, but it doesn't have to end there. There's a way out. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Conviction points you towards healing and freedom Conviction, conviction causes you to repent. But condemnation is a death sentence. Condemnation says there is no way out. Condemnation says that you're lost. That's why when you, when you do slip and stumble in your life, God convicts you and says, hey, this isn't right. You need to to, do to repent and put your eyes back on me. But the devil says, well, it's already too late. You already messed up. There's no way out. You're just a failure. You're just worthless. You might as well not even try. Condemnation says there's no way out, but conviction leads to salvation so this grief that they feel though it 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 produced in them an earnestness to to deal with what was going on they they then go ahead and demonstrate their eagerness to clear themselves Basically, by dealing with the issues that Paul addressed, they demonstrated their eagerness to not want to stay in that position, but to clear their names and get right back on track. It says they were indignant. To be indignant, it's a strong displeasure at something considering, considered unjust, offensive, insulting, or, or base. It's a righteous anger. So they were indignant at what was happening around them, and they recognized the wrong that they were seeing in the Corinthian church, and it wasn't sitting right with them anymore. Because they were convicted towards repentance and, and making a change. It says, what fear. They basically reinstilled their fear of God. Considering God in awe and power as they were supposed to. And they understood the consequences of rejecting God. Because the reality is, is that if you reject God, there is a long-term consequence. And that's an eternity without Him. And he says that they had longing and zeal to be back with Paul to restore that relationship. And then finally it says, what punishment? What a weird phrase. But what Paul's talking about is that, that when Paul pointed out the stuff that was going on, they, they, they got up and they took a, a, took a stand. Sometimes church discipline is necessary when people won't repent, when they won't change their ways. So they stood up and they said, look, We'll deal with what needs to happen. They, they dealt with those that were doing these things. And the great news is, is that actually in this letter, remember Paul says, okay, you've showed them enough discipline. That's, we don't want to push them to the point of despair. That's, the point of discipline is never condemnation. It's always about driving people to repentance so that they'll get right back on track. But they had dealt with the wrongdoer. But then he says, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now this is interesting because does this mean that the the Corinthian church, that that they had done nothing wrong? Well, no, it can't mean that because if they had done nothing wrong, then there would be no need to repent. They wouldn't have needed to show their earnestness or their zeal. But I think Paul, we're going to see how what Paul is talking about here in the next verse. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 13a, this is a, I split this up. This is kind of a weird place to split up a verse. This, this, this whole letter has got weird splittings with verses and chapters. But anyway, it says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted so here's the thing for most of the corinthian church it wasn't that they were the ones sinning. matter of fact if you if you just think back about how the how the letter went paul was addressing certain concerns but he the letter was to the church it wasn't to the people that were acting up the letter was to the church most of these people in the church weren't actually actively involved in these sins They were just letting it run rampant in their church. They were allowing these things to happen. He says, listen, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness, it was for the rest of the church to step up and finally deal with the things that were going on in this church. It was to spur them into action and do something about all the things that Paul was correcting them on. And once again, there were so much factors. They were taking communion wrong. Remember they were doing communion and instead of actually remembering Jesus, they were just getting together and and eating and getting drunk? There was all kinds of stuff going on. And they were just letting it go on in the church. I mean, the implication, if you think about the guy that that the, the guy had the father's wife, like, this kid is still showing up with his father's wife and they're sitting in the pew listening to the message. I mean, this is just... Sinless sin, just rampant, being allowed in the church. They were just letting anything go. So the, the, the letter was for the church to deal with that. That was the whole reason why he says that you have proved yourselves innocent in this manner. What he's saying is, is that you're, you're stepping up and not actually being okay with what's going on. You weren't part of the problem and now you're actually going to stand up and and do something about the problem. That's where the whole punishment came in. They were enacting church discipline where necessary. They were correcting things as necessary. And I imagine even some of the ones that were involved in some of this stuff heard the letter and said, you know what, I'm going to straighten up too. And thank God that no matter what sin that we have, when we repent, it's without regret. Because ultimately we're innocent in Jesus' blood because the penalty has already been paid for each and every one of us. So the letter was to encourage the church to step up in earnestness. Earnestness means serious in intention, purpose, or effort, sincerely zealous. They had to stand up and and make a stand and, 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 and cause things to be changed. And they could have been offended. They could have said, man, you're just so unloving. You're just so unaccepting of this stuff. You know, why don't, why don't we let these people in and do whatever they want? You know, if, if you loved them, you would just let them do whatever. Does any of that sound familiar? What's going on today? If you loved them, then you would be okay with whatever that they do. But the church, they could have been offended. They could have re- lashed out. They could have rejected Paul. They could have acted like so many act today but instead they took the mature route. They repented and they changed their ways. And Paul says, we're comforted because of this. And he says, besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. So in addition to Paul being comforted and made joyous the 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 corinthians reaction to to titus gave joy as well matter of fact the corinthians reaction to the letter gave titus joy and then paul is also rejoicing at how they treated him as well everything went different than than he thought that it might they actually showed titus great hospitality and paul's happy about that because you know there's the whole idea of shooting the messenger Paul's bringing this letter. It's pretty harsh. And it's interesting because this, this harsh letter that Titus is coming, and I have to imagine Titus knows what's in the letter as he's bringing it down there. And I don't know for sure, but I have to imagine. That's, that's why everyone's so happy that Titus is comforted and not just kicked out of town. But he shows up with this letter, and, and we find out that Paul's actually boasting about the Corinthian church. And Titus is like, that's not what your letter says, Paul. So now Paul's like, did you, Titus is like, did you read the letter you just wrote? Now you're boasting about the Corinthian church. But anyway, Titus shows up. And I don't know what he was, can you imagine what Titus is carrying this letter, what he's expecting to receive? But they, they show him hospitality. They show him love. They read the letter and they don't lash out, but they make some corrections. They, make some ch- they, they act in obedience and repent and get back on track. And then Paul says, just as everything we said to you was true, so you remember most of this letter, Paul's been talking about, hey, we've not lied to you. We've told you the truth. We always tell you the truth. Paul says, so also our boasting before Titus is proved true. Can you imagine this? Paul's like, I only speak the truth, and he's talking all the good about the Corinthians, and like, there was the potential. Maybe this is one of the things he feared, that they would make a liar of him. But they didn't. And he says that, we even boasted about you and, and everything that we said about you proved true in front in front of Titus. And then in verses 15 and 16, well, this is the end of the, the chapter. It says, and his, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You know, it had to be a... a A great example for Titus because Titus is is one of Paul's pastors he's one of his his spiritual children he's teaching to be a pastor and and this had to have been a great experience for, for Titus to go down there and see a church receive correction properly they acted in obedience they repented and they demonstrated that what Paul said about them was true could you imagine if it had been different Paul shows up to Titus, or Titus shows up to Paul, he's all distressed, and he's like, I'm done with this pastoring thing. I'm out of here, it's not worth it. You gave everything to these people. You poured your life into them, and they just rejected you. And they did. I mean, could you imagine how different it could have been? Or maybe that happened, and Titus is more mature than, than me, and he doesn't get all bent out of shape. But I think this was good for Titus, to see people responding appropriately. Because not only is he seeing people respond to Paul appropriately, but he's actually seeing people respond to God appropriately as God is working through Paul. And he got to see true discipleship in action. He saw them act in maturity and obedience. That word that nobody likes, obedience. Obedience. You know, the reality is that we are to be obedient to God, and we're to be obedient to those God has put in place over top of us. And I don't mean obedient to the point of of, you know, anytime someone tells you to do something that's in opposition to the word of God, then you can reject that no matter who tells you that. But we are to be obedient to those. And I've I've had to do things that I didn't necessarily agree with, and I've done things that that I wasn't sure about. Sometimes I've been in obedience because I didn't have a clear direction from God. And sometimes I've done stuff that I didn't agree with and it turns out that more often than not, I was wrong anyway. Turns out those people that are placed over me tend to have a little more experience in the things that I'm dealing with. But these people, they they were obedient. And they, they received Titus with great honor and respect. Received him with fear and trembling, with great honor and respect. And probably uh, received him as one that was placed over them as well because he was one of Paul's disciples. And then Paul ends. He says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You know, this is an interesting thing because I wonder when Paul's confidence came into effect. Did he? have this confidence before he sent the letter after he sent the letter was he a little wishy washy and then he got the response to the letter from Titus and went oh now I have great confidence I don't know but I imagine the way he was boasting about them to Titus he had great confidence in the beginning what an amazing man Paul is even in the midst of all this he still loves them he cares for them and he still believes in them and truthfully that's the sign of a great leader is to walk behind people to lift them up to encourage them to believe in them and that's who paul was and it turns out his confidence hadn't been misplaced amen